You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. What is child psychiatry? Many people are confused about what a psychiatrist does, not alone what a child psychiatrist does. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Hardy. Dr. Hardy is a board-certified child, adolescent, and forensic psychiatrist who is the medical director of the Colorado Boys Ranch. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for being here. Oh, I'm delighted to be here with you. Dr. Hardy, can you please enlighten us as to what it is that you do? What it is I do. Well, hopefully we've applied what we've learned through our training as far as normal development and try to recognize disorders that affect children and adolescents and often their families as a result of emotional or behavioral or related problems. So we try and make that diagnosis, and then if appropriate, uh, apply treatment, which usually involves quite a bit of coordination, a little more than probably most clinicians uh, have to do. Certainly when you see younger children, that it's almost like practicing veterinary medicine? It is certainly very challenging, and it can seem as alien, I suppose, uh, as trying to take care of a sick cat some days, if you've never had one, for sure. But it is difficult in that you have to understand what normal is, and probably like a veterinarian, I hadn't thought of this, my uncle being a veterinarian, you have to learn lots of different rules about what normal is. What's normal for a cat obviously is not the same as for a dog. So you have to appreciate a fairly broad range of normal behaviors. And that's something that involves both, I think, a skill set, but also some discipline because we use a lot of instruments, at least we should, to help figure out what normal is. So what kind of instruments? Well, the one that I like and have used, and people have a variety, is I was trained using the Child Behavioral Checklist. It's often called the Achenbach. The folks up in Vermont developed this instrument, and the way it was developed is kind of interesting. Um, They went out and asked uh, about many different types of potential problem behaviors, so it was a-theoretical. And they interviewed boys and girls of different ages, school teachers and parents, both moms and dads. And then they just did what was called a cluster analysis, and they said, well, let's see if a certain number of problems occur frequently enough that we can make some statistical decision about what a normal range is. So it's a pure statistical instrument, no theory behind it. And they found a certain number of items that clustered together, and they could occur both independently or together with other areas. So you have these problem domains that might run everything from anxiety and depression through aggressive behavior or uh, delinquent behavior, uh, inattentive behavior. So you end up with about nine different subscales. And that's a wonderful tool in that you can get information from both parents and from children if they're old enough, 11 and older, from school teachers. And this instrument will control for the gender and the age and the informant. So you can truly get an idea of how a youngster scores, at least statistically, across a number of different problem domains. By themselves, they don't diagnose a condition, but they certainly give you an idea of where a youngster compares, let's say, to another 11-year-old in the general population. And the other nuance that's really good about this instrument is that you can really get an appreciation about how people agree or disagree on how a particular child is behaving, and that can be very informative as well. And the final thing is it's an instrument that's been around for, I would say, at least 30 years. It's been used internationally. It's been validated 
even in Sri Lanka. So it's even been cross-culturally validated. And you don't often hear those words, particularly in child psychiatry, reliable and valid. Sounds like it may take a lot of time in order to get all that data, though. Well, you know, you'd think it would be, but they're actually filled out by the informant themselves. And it's about 113 items, and one just rates it never, often, uh, or sometimes. It's pretty much trivariate. And so people can fill it out usually within just about 15 minutes, and they have a computer program. I'm not related to the instrument. It's the University of Vermont's uh, instrument, but I have to tell you I've used it for many years, and it comes with a computer program. It's very inexpensive, and the data can be put in quickly. It generates a nice graphic that you can share with the family or whomever, and they can kind of see how you know junior compares to the average youngster in the normal range or not. And, you know, along those lines, it's often very helpful for parents and uh, persons to see how they're normal, because that's often not appreciated either. It's a fairly expeditious way of evaluating it along with everything else one does. Do you find that the different informants often do have completely different ideas about what the child's problems may be? Well, usually I get a clue, and often these are where I have families that have divorced and there's often a differing disagreement about whether or not even an evaluation is in order. So I can sometimes confirm certain biases. I'll give you an example. I've got a little boy I'm seeing now. He has a number of problems, learning problems, seizures, and a severe problem paying attention. And everybody agrees he has problems except the biological dad. But biological dad only sees him on weekends and even then infrequently because the father has to travel. So the father's very concerned that the son might be diagnosed with something he doesn't have, and there's a lot of anxiety about treatments, particularly medications, just around everyone. So I was able to engage with this father and get him to fill a form out so he could participate, even if he couldn't physically be there in the office, and then I could let him know kind of how he's rating his son, and that was helpful. And and in the worst-case scenario, I might end up with a child who's, let's say, very depressed, the child rates themselves very depressed. I think clinically they're depressed. The mom rates them as depressed. The school teacher sees them as very depressed. And the father, who's not as involved with the child, rates them completely normal. And I can bring that father in and say, I know why you don't think your child needs to be treated. Look, he's totally normal in your eyes. And I I wouldn't want to treat my child either if I thought they were completely normal and rated them that way, just like you have. I'll say, but here's the rub and I would show them the other informants, and that's been very helpful. And usually that's another thing that psychiatrists do, and this is different than the adult group, is that we often have to forge agreement, much like attorneys do uh, in child custody cases, to make an outcome occur. And, of course, my training in adult is pretty much the confidentiality. One does not involve other family members typically in the decision for treatment. That's kind of a private decision the identified patient makes. Child psychiatry instruments often are helpful in at least elaborating what people can agree on, which is generally the first order of business. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Colorado psychiatrist Dr. John Hardy. We are discussing some of the challenges about practicing child psychiatry. So, John, it seems to me as a child psychiatrist, you see a whole range of problems from probably pretty benign things to incredibly severe and potentially disabling. Can you speak to that a bit? Sure, you bet. One of the things that surprised me 
when I got into practice was I, I was a big fan of epidemiology. And people always have minds and clinicians and uh, important people in the history of their field that has an impact upon them. And for me, although there were many people that I admire, uh, Michael Rudder was really, if I had to pick a hero, a rock star, if you will, of child psychiatry, it's Sir Michael Rudder. And he was an epidemiologist, and uh, I've always tried to be informed about the frequency of conditions. And so I was really shocked when I walked out of my waiting room and I was finding children that had learning disorders, hyperactivity, they were victims of abuse, and they appeared to have a psychotic mood disorder because statistically they should be rarer than hen's teeth, and yet here they are in my practice. And what I didn't appreciate was the referral effect, that one of the things that all specialists have to be cognizant of is they don't see the average person in the general population. And in child psychiatry, that's particularly true because there are so many different barriers that a child has to cross before they ever make it to a subspecialist. First, their mental illness has to be recognized in the community. They have to be usually seen by some kind of a gatekeeper, primary care. Then they have to have not responded or had persisting symptoms that are severe enough to warrant referral for mental health treatment. And then when that has not been sufficient, they have to have access to a child psychiatrist. So it takes quite a bit of momentum for a child with mental illness even to make it to the attention of a child psychiatrist, and this greatly increases the risk of comorbidity. I point that out because I'm cognizant we have colleagues on the line, and they may read about the number of medications that a child psychiatrist might prescribe and think, my goodness, you know, uh, why are these children receiving different types of meds and so many sometimes? And the answer is, is they're very ill. They're very similar to someone with severe heart disease or a very severe adult psychiatric patient. They aren't common, but they're very common in a psychiatrist practice. Now, you mentioned the issue of access, which, of course, is huge. There aren't nearly as many of you as we need out there, especially primary care physicians. How can they more appropriately refer to you, a child psychiatrist? They're very eager to refer, and I think it's unusual. I can't imagine an an inappropriate referral. The reality is is that there's a little less than uh, nine child psychiatrists per 100,000 children and adolescents. And there are some states like Alaska and Nevada who have less than four of us per 100,000. There's about 200 metropolitan areas in this country that have no child psychiatry access. And of course, there are lots of reasons for that shortage. Maybe the fact that there's five years of training after medical school, it could be because there are issues with parity for insurance. It may have to do with the complexity, but all of those things are going to remain significant barriers to access. And I think there really has to be, and I think, an example, the American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry and other groups have made an effort to share information to primary care physicians to make them feel more comfortable in the assessment and at least the initial treatment of children and adolescents. But they're not particularly thrilled to do too much of that. I do sense a lot of reluctance to get too involved. And I think some of the issues now with warnings about medications and those sorts of liabilities have had an impact we've seen, even in the willingness to treat fairly straightforward depression in teenagers. So to answer your question, I think we have to be more available to help clinicians 
be able to make referrals, and there probably has to be some evolution in how mental health care is delivered to encourage child psychiatrists to be available to a larger number of patients and probably to be used more as consultative resources rather than the primary treaters of many of these youngsters. One of the things that always is puzzling to me, and I'm sure to others out there, is taking into account the developmental issue. So, um, for example, when somebody says they have a, a moody teenager, what, what does that mean? They may well have an entirely normal teenager, or it may be that you're seeing the onset of depression and anxiety or other conditions which often spike at that time. So sometimes you simply don't know, and that's why it takes a little bit of effort. Uh, The differential is very long. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. John Hardy. We have been discussing the complexities of practicing child psychiatry. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.